This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. This show is called The Climate Dispossessed. It follows on from my interviews with people in New Zealand. And um, I was given a book as I left by one of the people I met there very kindly. She gave me this book called The Climate Dispossessed by Teal Crossan. So we're going to talk to Teal. She's an environmental lawyer in Wellington. And she says that uh, this is a quote from her book. New Zealand is stealing from the people of the Pacific. We're stealing their land, their homes, their water, and possibly we may be recolonizing their future. And then we'll talk to Dr. Peter Sainsbury in Sydney. He has written in Pearls and Irritations that we are caught between the Scylla and Charybdis future of hothouse earth or a nuclear winter. He writes in that pithy way, sort of metaphoric, so that we can get it that we are going to have to take action but any action we take is hugely problematic and as we listen to these interviews let's keep in mind the people and species that are being dispossessed as we speak at the moment in Aotearoa New Zealand Cyclone Gabrielle and the landslips and floods that followed in the North Island are dispossessing people and who can tell the amount of um, animal life that is being pushed out and killed by that, that event? All around the world, climate events like this are being fueled by, for example, a marine heat wave, by um, drought in Africa, and so many phenomena that we know come straight back to our responsibility to decarbonise. And it's not just by getting our local emissions down in Australia by the safeguards mechanism, it's by stopping the coal and gas at the moment, which we are exporting. And in New Zealand, it's by stopping the quantity of agricultural products that they're exporting, flogging the land and ruining it for the future. I love talking to both of these people because they show us how to be brave. There's a there's an orderly way to be brave. It's not by trusting in hope and optimism. It's by having the courage and the knowledge to consult everybody, 
and find a way through. So here we'll start with Teal Crossan. Their people displaced, their lands taken, my lands drowning. With us from Aotearoa, New Zealand, is Teal Crossan. She is an environmental lawyer and has served Pacific nations at international climate negotiations. She has advised Greenpeace International, the New Zealand government, and it's about issues concerning human rights, deep sea mining, protection of biodiversity, and climate change. She's highly aware of all the treaties, such as the Treaty of Waitangi, which must be honoured. And she's written a book called The Climate Dispossessed. So we're going to talk about people displaced by climate events. We know what it looks like. Here with the bushfires of 2020 and the Lismore floods last year, the epic floods in Pakistan and Cyclone Winston in the Pacific, where I think people are still rebuilding. Meanwhile, listeners, I'm sure you, like me, will want to tell Teal how sorry we are to hear about the damage caused by Cyclone Gabriel just this week. It's been a terrible shock. So let, let's start there. So welcome, Teal, to the Climate Action Radio Show. Can you tell us about Gabriel? Yeah, thank, thanks, Vivian. Thanks for having me. Cyclone Gabriel is shocking in the amount of damage it's caused across the top of the North Island, particularly in the Hawke's Bay and, and other areas. And the thing to remember is that it came on the back of quite devastating floods in Tamaki, Makoto, Auckland. So we've been hit by two climate disasters, really, in the space of a very short space of time. And what it's revealed is just how unprepared we were in terms of not building in the right places and allowing you know, houses to be built in floodplains. And as, as an environmental lawyer, I'm aware that we've had these um, guidance for a number of years about avoiding this, but we've never had really any legal enforcement that we shouldn't be building in floodplains. And so largely development has been um, the status quo. And we're now seeing how badly that turns out for people. I mean, my book that you said is about climate dispossessed focusing on the Pacific, but we've seen in the Hawke's Bay that there are thousands of people dispossessed from their homes in Aotearoa. And I don't think we're expected to see that kind of devastation so soon. You know, like we, we knew that more intense flood storm events weren't going to be the way of the future without responding to climate change. But it really has, has hit home for those of us in Aotearoa a lot sooner than many of us would have thought. Has the media made Cyclone Gabriel seem like an act of God? Or have they connected it to the marine heatwave, which gave Gabriel so much energy? And that marine heatwave, of course, is fuelled by the emissions from places like Australia and New Zealand. A, a lot of the focus has been on how can we help people in need and what is our emergency response doing? But I do think the media has made links between the storm event and Cyclone Gabriel being part of a climate change impact. So that's great to see. And we've had all, all across the political spectrum have accepted that what we are seeing is a cause of climate change. And that's really new for Aotearoa in New Zealand. It, and the, you know, it's, we've seen a lot of natural disasters and haven't been seeing the links of climate change. In fact, you'd, we would see a media report talking about a, 
um, a natural hazard event that was clearly being a, a cause of climate change. And then we would see on the next a next media item discussions about the need to reduce emissions and how we weren't doing enough in terms of agriculture and transport and not really making the connection that the impacts are being felt here in Aotearoa. Yeah. Well, in your book, The Climate Dispossessed, you say these people are not refugees. Now, can you expand on that? Yeah, and, and that's part of what drove me to write the book is that in Aotearoa and more broadly, there was this discourse that people who are being dispossessed, forced from their homes because of climate change, were being characterised as refugees. And it put them into the state of being a victim um, caused by, I guess, the, the problems of their own country. And under international humanitarian law, refugees have a very special place in the legal system, but it isn't caused by the impacts or the actions of other countries. It's caused by your own country um, persecuting particular groups of people. And one of the challenges is that refugees, um, by classifying them as refugees, it suggests that they have some kind of legal protection, but they don't. People who are dis dispossessed because of climate change are not protected internationally at law under the Refugee Convention. It's a different type of legal mechanism. And in fact, there is no legal protection for people who have been dispossessed from their homes because of climate change across border, which was one of the key issues I looked at. The striking first words of your book, The Climate Dispossessed, says, New Zealand is stealing from the people of the Pacific. We are stealing their land, their homes, their water, and possibly we may recolonize their future. Well, stealing is a crime, but is there any law which covers this sort of stealing? There is actually. The law of state responsibility um, makes it an offence to harm the um, territory of another country. And so what we're doing in terms of polluting in New Zealand and other, and other countries that are polluting, we're actually harming the territories of other countries. And New Zealand has invoked this when, for example, we saw nuclear testing in the Pacific, which in the radiation fallout harming our country, we went to the World Court and said, we think this is unacceptable. Yet now that the shoe's on the other foot in terms of New Zealand being the perpetrator, um, in terms of New Zealand being responsible for high levels of emissions, we're not willing to accept responsibility because we are the ones who are predominantly responsible, along with other developed countries, for the cumulative emissions currently responsible for warming. Well, there are a lot of court cases around climate change in the world. What laws do you see need to be refined or made more explicit? Here in Aotearoa, it's a really great question. We have the Climate Change Response Act, which sets up this really great legal framework to set emissions budget, we have the 2050 emissions um, target to keep keep our own emissions um, to net zero by 2050. And we have an emissions reduction plan. But what we don't have is any enforcement of decisions that are actually impacting on those emissions. So decisions by companies, decisions by the government, decisions by local councils that are actually exceeding the emissions budget, there's no enforceability. It's this, it's this massive legal loophole and that if you're making decisions that will re result in emissions beyond our budgets, there should be enforceability there. So I, I, it's a really strongly held view of mine that there's a massive legal loophole in our climate change legal framework here in Aotearoa. I can't speak to other countries, but that's a key issue for us. 
regarding refugees or displaced people by climate, what UN law or provision should be. This is, as you say, it's an international crime in a way. Other people have polluted the atmosphere that's causing them to be swept away by floods. What international change would you like to see? Well, actually, part of my book wanted to look about the tension that if we have some kind of law in place, it acknowledges that it's too late to stop the harm being caused. And so my view is that we actually need to meet our existing legal obligations, which is to firstly stop emitting. Like that needs to be where we need to um, focus our efforts. Secondly, we need to be providing funds to enable countries vulnerable to climate change, particularly the Pacific, to adapt. Um, needing laws to protect displaced people displaced is the is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And I guess my view is it's really for Pacific peoples to say, should we be talking about that and what would it look like? And we have seen countries calling for it. But my, my view is that the predominant advocacy from the Pacific is to actually ask countries to stop emitting and to provide the resources they need to adapt. It's well, a real tension. I can see that. It's really hard. Look, COP27 in Egypt agreed to start paying for loss and damage. And I wonder, is this a better way to help people internally displaced in our region rather than creating a humanitarian visa, for example? Yeah, I completely agree with you, Vivian, because people don't want to leave their homes. Like there seems to be this assumption that, oh, well, your home is being flooded. You can come and live in our home. I mean, it's just absurd. So enabling people to have the resources so that they can be autonomous, make their own decisions about their own sovereignty and how they want to adapt to climate change is much, in my view, is the better approach. And that's what Pacific countries have largely been asking for. So it was great to see, finally, some funding provided to loss and damage. It's been a long-standing ask of Pacific and other vulnerable nations to acknowledge that those who have been emitting for far longer um, have some responsibility to help those who are suffering the consequences. Mm. There's a tension, as you say, at the centre of your book, and you say even discussing how to provide for climate-displaced people provides an excuse to continue polluting the global atmosphere. And I think cynics in Australia would prefer to pay for a million climate refugees, let's say, just a million, there's not that many people in the Pacific when it really comes down to it. Half of them, you know, have to be resettled. It's cheaper than stopping the profitable industries that are polluting. That's the cynic's point of view. I would like you to speak to those cynics, please. Give me the lawyer's answer to their cynical position, which is, to me, that's where the, I asked, why I asked you the media question, because it seems the media just bolsters it up. They don't say it specifically, but they bolster up that point of view. What would you say to the cynic? That, that's ex exactly right. I think that point of view is dangerous. But I also think we should think about if it was our country, would we think that's acceptable? Would we think it's acceptable if we were in the situation that we could just be shipped off somewhere else? I don't think anyone thinks it's just. And if we are to have global relations between other countries, we need to behave in a way that is just and fair. And it's entirely unfair to suggest that sovereign nations should be moved because it's cheaper. I don't think that's the way that we behave in terms of a global society. Yeah, But that's the risk of discussing it, is that people do think it is cheaper. Yeah. 
it's it's a huge problem, isn't it? I think it's possibly even more for Australia because we have more emissions per capita and we export emissions and we keep suppressing that discussion. We talk about, oh, we're getting our emissions down, but we don't talk about the exported coal and gas that is huge from Australia. So I think there's a great, I'm glad you're speaking to us and I think we have to get more people speaking like this to appeal to international ethics or global self-interest. <laughs> I think that's right. And the thing about fairness is that you're only ever going to agree to what's fair. So we need all countries to sign up to reducing emissions. But there needs to be a sense of fairness in that. Otherwise, no one's going to do what they want. And countries like Australia and Aotearoa, we need all countries reducing emissions because we're suffering ourselves. So fairness, in my view, must be the measure of what our agreement is. Otherwise, we can't expect any other countries to reduce emissions. And we know there are countries, you know, countries who are developing who are increasing their emissions at a rapid rate. We need those countries to reduce emissions. But one of the things the media always forgets to say when it talks about, for example, countries like India, is that their per capita emissions are very, very low. You know, they're less than half the world average. Countries like New Zealand are, are above the world average. And also the levels of poverty in India, it's it doesn't it doesn't compare and so we need to think about fairness if we want to have a realistic chance of everyone working together we're talking as if all of this is decided by policymakers you know people in parliaments and the united nations but what about consultation you have quite a chapter on that for example with maori people in terms of the treaty of waitangi and with pacific people many of whom have been pillaged by colonial powers and are still suffering nuclear contamination and war games in the Pacific. So they're, you know, shattered by power plays in their region. And who consults them? I know they have Pacific Islands Forum. There's one coming up soon. But can you talk about consultation, how to make that better, more genuine? Yeah, it's a great question. In, in terms of working with the Pacific, we need to be listening to what the Pacific want. I think several years ago, we came out with a Pacific visa for based on climate change impacts. But before we did that, we had actually gains with Pacific countries and understood what their needs and aspirations were. So I think in the terms of climate change, because the Pacific are the most vulnerable, our foreign policy needs to be led by the needs of the most vulnerable. Um, but turning to um, mana whenua, and Māori and Aotearoa, it's not actually consultation we need, it's true engagement with um, iwi Māori as treaty partners, and that's a, a bigger conversation about constitutional transformation, but one of the um, practices of Aotearoa New Zealand is not to be engaged Māori in our foreign policy, but to actually be um, the government to be leading it, whereas we should be working with Māori as a treaty partner and actually talking to Māori about solving these climate change policies and, and what our approach should be. And none of that has been happening with a level of meaningfulness that it should be. Well, just uh, this is a side issue, but for Australian listeners, we're having a big debate here about a voice to Parliament for First Nations people. And behind that, there's a, another push for treaty and we look to New Zealand for the Treaty of Waitangi. You mentioned the name iwi Māori. I don't know what that term means. Could you explain how the consultation works? 
how, and how it could work better and maybe some advice for us if we have a treaty how we can make it work for this these issues because i'll tell you in australia the indigenous people are the ones on the front lines of not so much climate change they are also there but they are guarding lands where coal mines are happening there's a huge adani coal mine the wangan and jagalinga people have been doing ceremony round the clock for about two years there to stop that mine and there are many in the northern territory also trying to stop gas pollution um, gas mining gas drilling so it's really important that they're consulted and given absolute um sort of an authoritative place at the table can you tell us a bit how it works yeah, so iwi Māori refers to um, iwi as the word for tribe in te reo Māori. So Māori are not one one group of people. They're made up of a number of iwi tribes who, who have their own self-determination and, and authority to speak. And again, they're also made up of half sub-tribes. So it's important that we acknowledge the political structures within Māori when we're engaging with them. And for us, according to our treaty, it's not about consultation. It's about joint decision-making. Now, we haven't got there yet. We don't have a constitution that reflects joint decision-making, but there are certain parts of New Zealand that are trying to move towards that and other parts where the discourse is less constructive. But one example is the Whanganui River, which has been acknowledged as a separate legal entity, and it's managed by co-governance, where you have half Māori and half um, on the board, board managing the river, Half of the representatives are appointed by iwi Māori and the other half are appointed by the Crown. And so they make joint decisions by consensus about how to manage um, the river. So that's just one example of what it can look like, but we're certainly a long way off and there's a lot of movement towards transforming our constitution to actually reflect um, tetility or waitangi and, and what the agreements were back in the day. And that's underpinned by wanting to have a just system for for our country moving forward. But I certainly wouldn't want to advise Australia on, on how you might progress your um, relations with Indigenous peoples, but just to acknowledge the incredible work Indigenous peoples are doing in Australia in terms of speaking up for, for saving parts of the environment being destroyed by mining and, and other interests. Yeah. Thank you. Just to finish, would you like to just make a general uh, speech, like just to talk to like Pacific people, the people who are most likely to be affected, who are being affected right now by climate events, people who are being dispossessed, speak to them. I guess what I would say is that there are people in Aotearoa who desperately care about that issue. And, and those of us who are working in the climate justice movement want to see Aotearoa reducing our emissions much faster, showing more leadership internationally to encourage, encourage other countries to reduce their emissions. And we need to be following the lead of the Pacific, really, and providing that support through adaptation and working in partnership with our Pacific neighbours. To me, that's what we need to be doing. Um, Pacific are at the front lines of the crisis and we should be allies in that fight for justice. Thank you. Thank you very much, Teal. So we've been talking to Teal Crossan. She's an environmental lawyer in Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and um, her book is called The Climate Dispossessed. It's a very good book. It's a small book, but it's got it packs a punch. So please get that book and read it. And thank you very much, Teal. Thank you. Pleasure to speak to you.
When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. <laughs> which means my child. We ask the question to ourselves, what are we going to tell our children if we fail to protect our planet?
Kom Olive. If this is a story about our islands, it is a story for the whole world. I'd like to introduce Dr. Peter Sainsbury. He's a retired public health worker with a long interest in social policy. Peter turns up at many climate events in Sydney and, in, and writes articles for the online journal Pearls and Irritations. I'd say he's a friend of this show, though it's a while since we've heard from him. From talking to Teal Crossan in New Zealand, we've got a clear picture now that many Pacific people are being dispossessed by climate change events, and this includes our own Torres Strait Islanders. The finger pointing out of the clouds is on us. The coal and gas ships leaving Australian ports every day are on our watch. We can't wriggle out of it with aid to the Pacific, and we've got to stop the trade, at least from new coal and gas projects. I hope everyone listening will at least agree with that. Peter has read the latest IEA report, and he found that this International Energy Agency wants us to bail out the world's 9,000 plus coal generators mm -hmm. to recoup their trillions of investment. So welcome, Peter. Tell us about that. Yes, thank you. Yes, I certainly like to think of myself as a friend of your program. You you do a fantastic <laughs> job, Vivian. Um, well, it, <laughs> it's all a bit odd, really, isn't it? One can sort of see the argument that the um, the IEA is putting that that holding back the retirement of all these nine thousand or so coal-fired plants around the world, holding that back is the fact that people have invested millions billions trillions of dollars in building them and we know we've known for a long time that when you build a privately owned coal plant it doesn't make money for quite a long time it takes a long time for it for it to recoup that investment um it's a bit like tesla you know tesla didn't make a profit for a long time um and so what they're suggesting is that one way of encouraging the owners of these um, coal-fired power stations to close them earlier is to allow them access to cheaper loans. Um, they're suggesting, say, 4% interest rather than 7% interest. Now, I can see there's a certain logic to that, um, uh, but, but people extol the virtues of capitalism and capitalism is based on this idea that you you invest a hundred dollars on the expectation that you're going to get a hundred and ten dollars back in a year's time. That's why you do it. If you, if you didn't do that, if you weren't expecting to get ten dollars extra back in a year's time, why would you invest your money? Because there is always a calculated risk that things will go bad that you might invest your $100 in something now. And in actual fact, the whole market will fall apart and in a year's time, you've got nothing left or 
perhaps $80 left, but you've lost then $20. So there's a, a balance here in capitalism. You you invest because you, you, your judgment is you're going to get, say, $10 extra back on your 100 in a year, but there's a calculated risk that you might lose some. But what the IEA seems to be saying is, well, yes, capitalism's fantastic, private ownership's fantastic, um, but when it goes wrong... The public purse is going to step in to protect the investments of these people. Well, really? That doesn't seem quite right to me. I mean, they took that chance and in the way it's turned out, they got it wrong. And in fact, people who've made that investment in recent years, they knew full well that it was likely to turn wrong. And then, you know, as you know, in, in the article I wrote, I've made the point that um you know, this has happened before around 1900. There was millions invested in horses and stables and farriers and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, and that all collapsed almost overnight. And similarly with Betamax, you know, people who invested in Betamax, even though it was generally agreed it was a better product, it fell apart and they lost their money. Kodak, they lost their money. They, they didn't go around saying, oh, well, we invested thinking we were going to make a profit all in good faith, and now we've missed out. The government, the public purse, should reimburse us. That's not the way it works. So well, it just seemed a little bit odd to me. Yeah, and reading that, it just reminded me of a story in my family, which I hope you'll indulge me. This is just reminded me. Um one of my relatives, his name was Cliff Howell, was a blacksmith at Brown uh -huh. in the Victorian Alps, and he went out of business during the war. One of his sons was shot down over France, and mm. his wife, Olive Magnet, had a heart attack on the train to Melbourne, so I imagine he was just devastated by that. But meanwhile, the bottom had fallen out of the blacksmith's mm -hmm. trade. And the family kept all his old smithy tools, you know, in an old shed at the back. And we used to look at this every time we'd have holidays up there. And I guess thousands of horses that needed shoeing just died out in that generation. Yeah. But I don't think anyone in the family ever applied to the government for loss of income. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I laughed when I read your article. And now you've said that globally, in that article, you said there are eight million people in coal and allied work that doesn't sound like much to me globally mm. and 32 million at the moment already employed in clean energy now it's not an easy swap transition from coal mining to uh, working on a wind farm but maybe you can be working in critical minerals mining you know those jobs can transition but what do you think is the best policy you know really to redeploy the people and Fasten, you know, accelerate this transition. We can't wait till every last blacksmith realises that he's out of business. Well, this is the real role of government, isn't it? This is what government should really be about, that it can see that regardless of what they might personally prefer because they happen to own a coal mine or something, as is the case in, with some Australian politicians, the writing is on the wall. Coal is going to die. The coal industry is going to die. And we need to protect the people who work in the coal industry. I should make the point there as well that not everyone who works in the coal industry 
goes to work every morning with heavy boots on and a pickaxe, um, which my grandfather did and went underground. Um, now, of course, that's not the way it works these days. It's all very automated. Um, but many of them work on the surface. And in fact, I think I can't recall, but I think it's about half of the total mining workforce in Australia actually works in the capital cities, in the offices. Um, so they're not all people who've just got these sort of mining skills. And, and that obviously is not just um, hewing the, the coal from the mine. It's also about all the technical aspects of keeping the mine running. Now, so they've got lots of skills. So it's government's job to see those trends and to say, well, we're not just going to dump all these people on the scrap heap, like metaphorically speaking, your, oh. your, your relative, um, that we've got a responsibility to organise a, a phased, responsible plan to transition for these individual workers and the communities they live in. And that can be done. And the alternative, of course, is you just let it collapse and then it's catastrophic. And we've seen that in other industries. We've seen that. And I think there are indications in Germany. They set up a fantastic consultative process a few years ago where they had unions, communities, industry, government, actually planning a transition away from coal mining and coal-fired power stations. And that did have phenomenal um, results. Now, you know, the sort of war in Ukraine has put a spanner in those works. But nonetheless, the, the idea and the implementation of it was there. And so they, they worked out, well, what's going to happen to these workers? Now, many of them, <laughs> we, we all age, many of them are just going to retire. Um, so you don't need to particularly plan their transition into a new job. Others need retraining. But the retraining needs to start before they lose their current job, not let them lose their job and then start to retrain them. That needs to be a progressive process. And there needs to be some income guarantee and some support to do all that. And there needs to be support for the communities that are involved, not just the individual workers. Now, this can all be done. And in fact, uh, in the Hunter Valley in, in, in New South Wales, and I think it's the Latrobe Valley in, um, in Victoria, then initiatives that bring together all those various sectors, national, state, local government, unions, industry, community members have started to plan those sorts of transitions and to develop the local industries. Um, for instance, I know the Hunter much more than Victoria, as you know, I live in Sydney. Um, and, you know, there, there are industries there already. There's agriculture, there are horses, you know, horse breeding and so on. There's wine. And there's all sorts of, and the port itself, the port, which was the biggest, is the biggest coal port, exporting port in the world. Though it's sort of writing on the wall several years ago, and it's transitioning away from coal. So these sorts of things can happen, but that's government's job. That's what they should be really doing. Planning an orderly transition, not just sitting back and saying, oh, well, we'll see what happens, and then a catastrophe happens. I don't think they're sitting back, but I think they're frightened of the fossil fuel interests. I think they're politically, you know, 
hogtied by them. That's my opinion. Now, I've interviewed people about the work transition, but it just seems to be going so slowly. We've interviewed people from Germany, you know, and and, and of course the, the models are there, the you know, the the template is there, but we seem to be really slow at doing it. But as you say, local areas themselves are doing it. But I'd like to come to another thing in your article, which was a graph. And it shows that by phasing out animal agriculture and rewilding much of the grazing land and land used for animal feed, like soy and all these crops that are grown just to feed animals, we would reduce global warming by as much as the total reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I find this hard to believe, but mm. where would you start? Well, I agree. That was surprising that that would have such a remarkable effect. There's no doubt agriculture is a a, a major um, what's the word? Look, it, 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 like fossil fuels, it's a major issue we've got to tackle over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years for the obvious reason that we all need to be fed. And currently not everyone is being well fed, although most of the world's well fed, but not everyone by any means. I think there's still something like just under a billion who, who are malnourished. Um, and, you know, the, the population is going to increase from around 8 billion to around 10 billion over the next 50 years or whatever. Um, so clearly nutrition and food is a major issue. Um, and the way we produce food at present is problematic well he's problematic it's also a sort of a bit uh, contradictory insofar as a lot of the food that's produced is produced by what's colloquially called big ag big companies that produce the seeds that produce the fertilizers that produce the um, weed killers and insecticides and so on big companies that are responsible for um, the farming, the distribution of food, sorry, the transport of food, the processing of food, the distribution of it, the retailing of it. It's controlled by not many companies at all. And, and they really do um, hold the farmers hostage in many, many ways. And that's problematic. There's a slightly other side to that coin, which is, the natural fact, I can't remember the figure, but let's say 50 percent, it's something like that, of all food around the world is not produced by that process, but is actually produced um, by local landholders, by indigenous people, by small communities, just producing on their land, often women, of course. Um, and, and so there's, there's these two aspects of it. But the reality is that food particularly in the big ag sense, is a major greenhouse gas emitter. And because it takes over so much land, clears grasslands, clears forests and so on, it removes those carbon sinks, the grasses, the, 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 the natural soil, um, or what's in the natural soil, the surface soil, the forests that absorb carbon dioxide from the air. And, and so as well as producing lots of car, um, greenhouse gases, it reduces the, the Earth's ability to absorb greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, which is what's evolved over the last, you know, 100, 500 million years. And so there the, is a real problem there. Can I just introduce, introduce the idea of 
animal agriculture as opposed to all the other type of agriculture. Yeah. I was in New Zealand recently and they are really struggling with that. They've put in a, a in 2025, there's going to be a tax on the methane emissions from the livestock. And everyone I spoke to said, this is new. Uh, it's new to have so much livestock. You know, it's 40 years ago, they would not have had so many cows at all. But now because of the big dairy, you know, export of milk, it's all for export, like us with our corn, mm. export. They're not growing food for themselves. They're growing export milk. Um, they've overloaded the land with these cows and the methane and the, the sort of, um, what would you say, degradation of the rivers is what they're worried about. Their water is is being... Yeah, put. yeah. So... Um, this idea, see a lot of people just say, well, you know, half the world is is already on a vegetarian diet, on a very low vegetarian diet. It's our rich world that is full of meat and enriched milk products, you know, dairy products. We don't need all of that. How how do you see a policy that would reduce that, you know, reduce that use of land for those, you might call them luxury goods? Yeah, I agree. And and what we see is that whilst you know many of the developing world countries don't eat a lot of meat, as they do develop, and and they they are developing, and even in sub-Saharan Africa, which is still uh, you know a long way behind in many ways, it's clear that it is going to develop. Then, as as countries develop, then they do <laughs> aspire to a diet that's much more like a Western diet with lots of meat and so in it in it. Um, and that does have to be controlled. Just to make a point, of course, that whilst a lot of the focus is on particularly beef and sheep, particularly beef, the beef uh, both for meat and and um, milk is very uh, harmful to to to, to the climate. Um, we can't forget the sort of growing of crops because most of the crops that we grow are grown to feed to the animals yes. and that's what causes the land clearing yeah. um so the two are very interrelated um but you know people are talking about alternative sources of protein of course fish is one but even that's limited you know many fish supplies are at their limit natural fish supplies in the ocean are at their limit um fish farms have major environmental problems there's no doubt about that um, it's difficult to imagine that fish farms are going to continue into the indefinite future in their current state um, because they are just so polluting. And then there are, are alternatives, uh, which, as you know, uh, George Monbiot focused on a, a few months ago where he talked about um, uh, sort of targeted fermentation um, using fermentation processes, the sorts of processes that for centuries have produced uh bread and milk and cheese sorry cheese yeah. and um and alcohol that we can use those um on fungi to produce protein for people um and and so and and then perhaps we eat insects in another but there's no way that the developing world's population can consume the volumes of meat that we consume in uh, in the West, okay. and on top of all that, th there's the issue of just animal welfare. Um, oh. I stopped eating um, mammals and birds a few years ago, not principally for environmental reasons, but for animal welfare reasons. I I I can't stand the thought of 
the mm. feed lots and the chickens in barns and all that. I think that's just yeah. intolerable. And yes. I don't think that's one way of carrying on. And of course, in China, they've got these pig hotels, multi multi-story hotels producing pigs. And, and same in America, actually. What do they call them? They're swine, I think they call them rather than pigs. Wow. Okay. Well, and it's funny because that's really hidden, isn't it? You know, occasionally you hear, uh, you see some organization will reveal photos of shocking scenes, but it's usually kept well under the radar in the media. There's another mm. Mombio's problems. He says our biggest climate enemy is the media you know they don't yeah. they don't give us the right story they keep keeping us quiet by not telling us and i certainly i'm very aware of not knowing the reality behind a lot of the products but let's get on because the last question is about another going to just say, Vivian, yeah. to give you a real pat on the back and people like john menadieu who run yeah. how much we need independent media who well, are you know producing these stories that the mainstream doesn't? Well, I agree. And community radio all over Australia and New Zealand are going to take our program now. Dunedin is take radio. They said, "Oh, we'll take it." So great. It's, just, it's like spreading some sort of. It's like a virus. You know, you spread out the alternative news, but it's such a big. You know, the the media itself, the co corporate media is just such a monolith. It just crowds it our brain, you know, with other information. But look, there's a, another graph in your uh, article, which it's like a great cliff, you know, which we've been putting this off for a long time, creeping up to this cliff, but it looks like we're now going to be falling off it as we drastically reduce emissions. And so I don't think there's any wonder that business is distracting us with the placebo of carbon capture and storage and geoengineering. And mm. I wonder how can we manage these distractions? Can you make it really brief because the time's running out? Well, to be honest with you, Vivian, it, it really all boils down to power, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> power in both senses, power in what keeps our computers running and enables you to broadcast on the radio and so on, but power in the sense of being able to make things happen. And um, until the governments of the world, because it, it basically, although multinational corporations are phenomenally powerful, it's still governments and, and intergovernment organizations like the WHO and the United Nations and all the rest of them, it, it's still them that really have the ability, the capacity, if they wanted to, to change things and make things happen. But the reality is that there's hardly a government in the world, certainly not one of any size, that is taking these problems seriously. They talk about it and they make agreements and one thing and another, but... Um, you know, the Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, has been very clear about this, that the governments are not seriously taking the, taking these issues seriously. And until they do, we are going to struggle and we're going to get closer and closer to that cliff. And what will make governments take things seriously, because they're not stupid, I assume, for the most part, they presumably have access to the facts, it has to be public pressure. And all I can encourage uh, people to do is to write to MPs, to take to the streets, to demonstrate. We must apply pressure to our MPs. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be party political here, 
but there's no doubt that something like the, the success of the Teals at the last election brings that to the fore, that people care about these issues and we need to augment that in whatever way we can. Yeah, I agree. And the Greens and and all the citizens who are sort of the quiet citizens who are getting better informed, need to be better informed, I think, who take their head out of the sand because it's so easy to have that sort of media-induced it's okay, mate, feeling, you know. Mm. I'd just like to finish with one question. I know you're an ardent person regarding nature and your articles are peppered with pictures of coral spawning and dragonflies migrating north. And I'm not very big on hope or optimism, but what gives you courage to go on pushing for the almost impossible changes we must make? You say in one article that we're caught between the Scylla and Charybdis future of hothouse earth or nuclear winter which i thought was very pithy what gives you the courage to just keep punching up those articles and going to those demonstrations and participating as you can as a citizen um i've always been driven by social justice and and that's what really keeps me going there's a sense in which i don't care if humanity becomes extinct in a hundred or a thousand or a million years in fact we will at some stage that's evolution and that doesn't worry me because I, I i don't have any religious beliefs as such but i can't I, I just find it so difficult to believe that we care so little about our children our grandchildren our great-grandchildren and and people in 50 or 100 or 200 years time that that we are going to inflict on them the punishment of the world we are creating. Do we really care so little about the people who are going to be alive in 2123 that we say, well, you know, whatever, if it's hothouse earth or a nuclear winter, we don't care, we'll be dead. That's just like the people in um, 1923 saying, we don't care about you and me, Vivian. I mean, I just... I can't believe that, that we are so uncaring about the suffering we're inflicting on just the next few generations. And that's what keeps me going, just this idea that, that we, at some stage, we must wake up, not just for our own benefit, but to start caring for the future and the near future. I'm not talking about 500 years away. I'm talking about 50. In fact, what I say to students is, I'll tell you one thing. 1970 doesn't seem that long ago to me, 50 years. And in fact, 1970, the world in 1970 doesn't seem very, very different in some ways than 2020. But I'll tell you what, 2070 is going to be immensely different to 2020. Because either we'll have started taking things seriously and we'll have to be doing things differently in the world to cope with climate change and all the other crises. I mean, peace is an, is an important one. Or we'll have continued to ignore it all and the world will just be a catastrophe. So in, 20, in 50 years time, the world one way or another will be very, very different. And yeah. we're the generation that can make that decision which way is it going to be different yeah that's why i said the big finger pointing out of the cloud is pointing at us you know we can't it just, is <laughs> someone else will do it it's us okay thank you very much we've been talking to dr peter sainsbury 
um, you can see he's a character and he's written marvellous articles which you can find in Pearls and Irritations. I didn't mean he's a character in any <laughs> disrespectful way, but he writes in a very... I took it as a compliment, Vivian, a compliment. <laughs> okay, thank you, Peter. My pleasure. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. You've been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show for Radio 3CR. It can also be heard in Sydney and Dunedin. Our guests tonight were Teal Crossan, author of The Climate Dispossessed, and Dr. Peter Sainsbury, author of Sunblock for Planet Earth. It's an article in the online journal Pearls and Irritations. The music tonight was from Small Island Big Sound, and this song is called My Child, Tao Ama Ana. And then from Listwa Zanzet from Mauritius with a song about displacement. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised logging, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. Now you're high, go on, pull up a chair.